We're starting a new series in Luke, and we're going to be walking through these books, and the series is going to take us basically from Advent to Easter, and we're going to look at the birth all the way through the life, and then the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to do so through different lenses about what does it mean to follow Jesus, what has Jesus really done, and I think this is going to be really helpful for us. But the point of buying you these, so ESV, who makes these, gave us a really great deal. Uh, they were 50% off, and we, were, we, we bought these for you because it's very important for us that you learn not only what does the Bible say, not only be able to listen to a sermon, but learn how to read the Bible for yourself. So I have done maybe 10% of my job if I just give you a good sermon that's helpful to you right now. I think most of my job is to equip you on how to understand and read the Bible for yourself. So, as we said earlier before, in one of our core values, man does not live on sermons alone. Uh, you have to be in the Word yourself if you want to grow. And if you're in Christ, God has given you His Holy Spirit. And preachers and teachers and all those things are helpful supports to help you understand the Word. But your primary teacher is the Holy Spirit who already lives in you. So, you can grow so much. So, I want you to do this. Half of it's the text, the other half is the is blank. And I want you to spend half your sermon looking down, writing things out, okay? I want you to engage with what is being said, engage with what the Word is saying. Take this. If you don't have any idea how to use the Bible for yourself, here, take this. All throughout the week, bring it back. It's going to be important that you write your name in it, and maybe an email or a telephone number, because I assume just because this is going to happen, a lot of these are going to get left and lost. Uh, and we only have so many. So write your name, just right now. Go ahead and write your name, your full name, and some sort of telephone number. Yeah, Nate is not helpful, okay? There's several of those. Write your full name, a telephone number or email, whatever you're more comfortable with, so that we can give it back to you. Make sure to bring it every week. We want you to learn how to read the Bible for yourself, to dive into it for yourself, and to equip you as best we can to do that. And hopefully sermons and anything you get from people like me, it's just a cherry on top, all right? The ice cream has been made by the Lord. He gives it to you without any other person needed. It's called the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And then people like me just put a cherry on top, okay? So I hope that's how you treat our, our time together. It's super important. Uh, but if you're not in the Word yourself, you're just not going to grow. So if you really want to grow, or if you're here and you just want to learn what Christianity is all about, this is the best place to do it. Don't just listen to me. Go to the Word itself and learn. If you have questions or concerns about what we believe, Go to the Word, go to the Word. So, we're going to be in Luke. We have four words to describe our Luke series. We're going to be working through it for the next uh, six months. We're going to break it into four series. Our four words are purpose. Everybody say purpose. purpose. Process. 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 Priority. Priority. Power. Power. We're going to use these four words to help us navigate Luke and to help us learn what is being said. This first uh, series, Purpose, is going to take us through Christmas it's going to be an Advent series and where we learn the purpose of why Jesus came. So why did Jesus come? This is what we're going to be talking about today, the purpose. When we get into process, it's going to be learning how did Jesus change the world? What way did he go about to change the world? And how can we imitate that? Priority is what did Jesus prioritize in terms of people, in terms of issues, in terms of things he was doing. When he was going about his daily life, he could have done a million things. But what did Jesus prioritize? What did he actually do? What kind of situations did he think were most important? And then finally, power. How do we get power to really change the world around us? And that's going to come through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to navigate Luke this way. The first series purpose 
the background of that is going to be the purpose of Jesus is to come and bring us good news. Everybody say good news. Good news. news. He wants to give us good news. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 says this. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So in a world full of fake news and bad news, Jesus has come to bring you good news. Good news. And what we're going to look at for the next eight weeks or so is what kind of good news? What is the good news that Jesus has come to bring us? So today, as we look through the first four verses in Luke, what we learn is that the good news, the first part, is that you can be certain. The good news that you and I have because Jesus has come is that you and I can be certain about the truth, certain about the gospel, certain about who God is, certain about our life and who we are, certain about these big truths that everybody's questioning and wondering. You can be certain. You can be certain. You don't have to wonder if you're in this room and you're like, man, what? You know, like somebody brought you. I'm so glad that you're here. I want you to know that Jesus wants to speak to you through the word. He wants to reveal himself to you. You don't have to wonder what happens to you after you die. It's not up for debate or grabs. You can be certain. You don't have to just hope for it. You don't have to just guess at it. You can be certain. And for those of you who may be struggling in different areas of your walk with Jesus, I want to encourage you. God is not a God of confusion. He wants you to be certain. And so we're going to go through different ways that the Lord, through this text, has helped us be certain about what's true. So look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bible, great, or use this. Uh, If you'd like to write in your own Bible, fine. But I'd love for you guys to write stuff down. I got a ton of information I have prepared so you can, right? I got lots of stuff for you to write, okay? So I I have gotten this for you. You can write it down and leave it there. So Luke chapter one, let's read it. It says this, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have, circle it in your thing, certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the gospel truth. That you may have certainty concerning who Jesus is. That you may have certainty concerning your eternal life. That you may have certainty concerning things that are true He wants you and I to have certainty. So the goal here is certainty. Hey, let there be light. Amen. Amen. There we go. That's good. Okay, I can see all y'all. Now I know in the back if you're sleeping or whatever it is that you're doing. So I have no shame. I'm not afraid of awkward situations. I will call you out. All right. I won't do that. Or maybe I will, as the Spirit tells me to. Okay, so the goal is certainty. And I want to go through a few reasons why you and I struggle with certainty. Some of you are uncertain because of all the fake news that's going on in the world that we live in. Especially if you are probably even much younger than me, you've grown up in that generation where all you are doing is trying to discern what is true and not true from normal media outlets. If you guys saw recently on Twitter, the guy who leads Twitter, Jack Dorsey, Uh, He wrote a long Twitter thread about why they're not allowing political ads or issue ads on Twitter anymore. He gave a long thing. I'm going to pull one out of that. One of the reasons he gave was this. He said, Internet political ads present entirely new challenges to civic discourse. Machine learning-based optimization of messaging and micro-targeting 
I need to think for a second about what he's saying, you know. He's smart. Okay, unchecked misleading information and deep fakes at all increasing velocity, sophistication, and an overwhelming scale. And he's saying we can't do this anymore because people can fake things at such a high degree of complexity and they can target at such a high degree of accuracy that it's literally impossible for the whole team of Twitter to discern, sort out, and prevent misinformation. So he just quit, and he said, we're not having political ads anymore. And some of us, many of us live in that now. Some of us have grown up with that, and we naturally mistrust information because of it. We live in a culture where we're skeptical, so we mistrust everything. If it has authority behind it, if somebody says this is absolutely true, we are hardwired now in the world we live in to assume it probably is not. We are so indoctrinated with fake news that we can't discern real good news anymore. We are uncertain about what's true. We mistrust information, and then we bring that kind of attitude to the Bible. And we come with uncertainty, and we have that perspective to the Bible. Some of you are uncertain because of personal suffering in your life. You're uncertain about whether these things can be true because right now you're drowning in some personal really bad news. Maybe it was just recently delivered to you. Or maybe it's not just personal, but you just look at the world around you, you see all the suffering, all the problems, and you wonder how in the world someone could be so certain about something like Christianity, so certain about hope, so certain about salvation, so certain that God is even good in the midst of all this tragedy. How, you wonder, can you be so certain? There's too much suffering. Some of you are uncertain because you're not sure simply whether this is so true it's worth changing your whole life. You agree with maybe some of the things Christianity says. You have no problems with what Christians believe in general, but you simply can't get there in the terms of whether it's so true it demands I give up my entire life to follow the way of Jesus. You're hedging your bet. You're a little uncertain. I used to have a friend in my previous ministry that I would meet up with him all the time. He would come to our stuff all the time. He loved our group. He loved our Bible study. He loved everything about what we did. He was super involved and invested. We would have tons of lunches and meetings, go through what's true about the gospel of Jesus. He would say, yeah, 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 yeah. And at the end of every time, he would say, man, I believe you. I just can't get there. And the reason was he just didn't want to give up. What the Bible required from him, he did not want to release. And he believed it was true, but not true enough. He wasn't so certain that it was worth giving his whole life up for. And some of you are in that boat. You have no problems with Christianity, no problems with what we believe, but you're kind of still hedging your bet. You're not so certain it's worth releasing your hand, your grip on life. That's the kind of uncertainty you live in. Some of you are uncertain, probably for good reason, that lots of Christians have misrepresented God. Or I would call them maybe so-called Christians have misrepresented God. Of course, we all struggle with sin. There's times I myself misrepresent God. There's times you and I who really love Jesus really misrepresent God. But there's also people who intentionally misrepresent God. You know, I was watching, uh, I had a couple things about this. My uh, John, who's one of our pastors here, was in, uh, we mentor on Wednesdays, and he had a a mentor in his meeting. And the kid was talking to him about religion and stuff. And basically, they got to the point where he was, um, the kid was frustrated because he felt like churches only ran services to get money. So he thought, I'm just going to pray on my own. I'm going to be religious on my own. He was uncertain about the truth of Christianity because his impression was that Christians only cared about money. Or some of you may have seen this. My friend Mike texted me this clip. We're all looking into Kanye's new conversion in his life. And uh, T.I. had this clip about Kanye's Sunday service. And somebody asked T.I., who's a rapper, who's Kanye's friend, 
hey, you've been to one of his services, what did you think? And so he began to talk about the service. It was in Atlanta. It was in this big mega church in Atlanta. So he went just to see his friend Kanye, what he's doing. Yeah, doesn't seem to be very religious. Uh, and he goes, and then he gives this long spiel about what was presented to him and the fact that they took the offering, and then they noticed his impression that T.I. and some rich rappers were there, and they took the offering again. But this time, the, the teacher got up, and he said, I know God has called 20 of you to give at least $1,000. And he said, I want you to stand up right now. Well, who's giving a thousand dollars? The Lord's telling me there's 20 of you, and people start standing up, you know. And this is his whole view now of what, what Christianity really is about is that when God's people gather, uh, one of their primary concerns is to get money. And this is more important than even the gospel, the truth. And so, this is the impression, and it's a real impression that some of you may have, even as we take the offering here, or whatever it may be. Now, I can guarantee to you. That our offering and money goes to mission and to make people's lives change and to send the gospel out around the world. That's what we hope to do with it. But I know you have uncertainty about Christianity because of the bad impressions and representations, whether it's money, whether people are fake healing people, whatever it might be. You have gotten a bad taste in your mouth. Therefore, you are uncertain. Some of y'all Christians are right. Some of y'all are not. So I'm not quite sure what to think. Some of y'all might be in that boat. Some of you are uncertain simply because you haven't gotten good answers to your hard questions. You have really good questions, really smart, hard questions, and you just haven't gotten an acceptable answer. And when you try to ask somebody about it, they push it under the rug. They won't deal with you directly because the question's too difficult. And now nobody's actually answered for you. How can God be good and there be evil in the world? Nobody's answered that for you. Or how can God be whatever, whatever, these hard questions? Why does it look like this is different than that in the Bible? These really good acceptable, tough, smart, hard questions, you have simply not gotten an acceptable argument or an answer that you find to be reasonable, so you're uncertain. Some of you are uncertain just because you haven't thought that much about it. This would be me if I wasn't already a Christian. You just go through life and just whatever. You just don't, you know, just whatever happens, you just live in your life and you haven't really thought that much about it. It could be true, could not be true, you know. You're like, just chill, California dude or whatever. You just want to go surf it. You just haven't thought much about it. So you're uncertain simply by default. You just haven't thought much about it. So there's a bunch of reasons. There could be more. But many of you are uncertain for those reasons, for other reasons. What I want to do today is obviously not address each and every one of those things. That's impossible. We'd be here all day. But throughout Luke, I want you to stick around because we will address all those reasons you are uncertain. Throughout the life of Jesus, we will learn what does Jesus do with evil? What is he doing? We will learn what does Jesus do about his sovereignty over the world? What does he allow and not allow? What is Jesus up to? How can I believe in the death and resurrection of a human being? All these different things we will talk about. So stick with us as we go through Luke. We're going to deal with some of the reasons you have uncertainty. Today, though, I want to keep it simple and give you three quick reasons why you can be certain. The first is that Luke wants you to be certain, who's the author of the book. The second is that God wants you to be certain. It is his heart and desire. The third is that the greatest place for certainty is in the character of Jesus. So the first one, we're going to work through these quickly. Luke wants you to be certain. You read in here, we already saw it, Luke 1 through 4. We'll put it on the screen one more time. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is why Luke is writing this book. And if you're a good reader, you read with the author's intent in mind. You read according to what the author has explicitly said about what they are trying to do. And Luke is not trying to write some story. He's not trying to tell a great tale. Luke is trying to give facts. He's trying to help a group of people become certain about something they've already been taught. 
So this is Luke's goal for you. As you read that book, this is his aim for them and for us now that we would have certainty according to the things we have been taught. So certainty is all about credibility, and I want to give you three credibility factors for Luke. So you're like, why would I trust Luke? Some of you are like, I don't even know who this guy is. Let me give you three things. The first is Luke had a credible life. Luke had a credible life. Now, this is interesting with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is the only Gentile, non-Jew gospel writer, meaning that he is not already an insider. He's not pre-biased towards God existing. He's not pre-biased towards the Messiah coming. He was not indoctrinated and raised with that thinking in mind. He was a Gentile. Therefore, we understand that he was an outsider from the beginning, which is helpful because he has no what we would call traditional bias. Some people, I tell them, I'm a Christian. They say, where are your parents? Christian. They're like, that's why you're a Christian. If you grew up in Iraq, you'd be a Muslim. If you grew up somewhere else, you'd be Catholic. You're a Christian because your parents are Christian. Just like I'm a Muslim, my parents are Muslim. It's called traditional bias. And so we see that here, this is not the case. It's not like, oh, of course Luke's going to believe in Jesus. He was waiting for a Messiah. He was Jewish. No, Luke was a Gentile. He came from the outside. Therefore, he had to be convinced by the facts. He had to be convinced by what he saw. He had to be convinced by what we're going to see, eyewitness testimony. He was very much on the outside looking in, becoming convinced by the things that he learned about this Jesus. Some of you today may be on the outside looking in. I want to open this up to you to help show you and convince you that this is true. You can be certain about the things of Jesus. So Luke had a credible life. Another thing we'll see here is Luke was a doctor, historian, author, researcher, and missionary. I would call that a competent human being. If you got me a doctor or a Ph.D. researcher, somebody who was on the field with their practice like a missionary, and they somebody who could write good books, and you asked them to figure something out, I think they would do a pretty good job. I think you would probably assume credibility. You would say, if that person writes me something about a subject, I'm going to listen to it at least. They're competent. So Luke is a competent human being. He's a historian, doctor, author, and missionary. Also, Luke was personally involved. So he believed this so much that he began to risk his life because as we'll see, Luke was involved with Paul and Paul was the most OG, just do anything you need to do to get the gospel out, get beat down all the time, no cares, just going after a person in the world. And Luke attaches himself with Paul, which means Luke's also in, in throwing distance when people are stoning Paul and it means Luke's also attached to Paul. So Luke believed this so much that he said, I'm going to give my life for it. If I die, I die. So Luke has credibility, he's competent, he wasn't an insider, he didn't have traditional bias, and he risked his life for what he believed. Luke is a credible person for us to listen to. Secondly, Luke had credible sources. If you look here at the text, we can put it on the screen again. Look, it says he spent time with eyewitnesses, and many of those eyewitnesses were obviously alive when Jesus was born and lived and raised again. He followed all these things, as it says, closely. So circle eyewitnesses and closely. What we learn about Luke is he was hanging out with Paul. Paul was in the inner circle with all the, the disciples and the apostles. So now Luke is talking with Paul, who's there with Peter, and Peter was one of Jesus' best friends. Now Peter's telling Luke, yo, this is what happened. And then Luke's talking to John, and John's like, yeah, I was there. And Luke's talking to all these people, boom, 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 because he's with Paul. And so the whole squad now is with Paul after Paul gets converted. So Luke's spending time getting information from the best sources, the ones who are with Jesus. And now he's compiling the information that he gets. Now, in a court of law, right, it only takes one or two or so eyewitnesses to actually judge somebody in terms of what happened 
And now in the Bible, we have so many credible eyewitnesses where Luke gets the account from. We can believe what he said because he got the information from the people who were there. Luke was not himself a disciple of Jesus at the time. Remember, he was a Gentile. What's also interesting about the source factor here is that Luke got his sources from them. And then you see here, it says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. Meaning, there's lots of other people who are writing about this, and if I say something explicitly untrue, it will be contradicted by all the other people who are writing about it. Meaning that Luke wasn't the only person writing this story. You see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, obviously, and other people we have information from, secular people, historians are living at that time. Luke is basically saying, I'm going to put this information out there. There's a lot of people writing narratives, and you can just compare them and see what lines up. So Luke had credible personal sources. He had credible sources on the outside. So what we have here is a very credible document from Luke. Thirdly, Luke had credible examples. Uh, he does two things. He, he seeks to fulfill the prophecies about Jesus. So I'll give you an example, Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 31. And he records how Jesus says he's fulfilling the prophecy made in Isaiah 61. So now to Jews, he's like, this is your Messiah. I'm going to give you an example. And then he fulfills the prophecies of Jesus, like Luke 9, 22, where Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. Luke's looking back, saying Jesus fulfilled a prophecy, and then what Jesus said came to pass. So now Luke has credible examples. So a credible life, credible sources, credible examples. We should trust Luke. Luke wants you to be certain. Okay, the second thing, God wants you to be certain. Now, we see that Luke wants you to be certain. That's all well and good. But the important fact here is that this comes from God's heart. God himself wants you to be certain. And some of you, you know, I hear this even now from like competent people that say, if God wanted me to be so certain, if he wanted to be clear, why doesn't he just write it in the sky? Just pop Jesus saved to make a big cloud out of it, you know? And I'd be like, okay, that's me. I wish you would do that. What if? I said, what if? What if God just showed up and sat next to you? And then he did some crazy stuff and then said, I'm God. Would that be good? They're like, yeah, that'd be pretty good. And I'm like, that's what he did. That's literally what he did. This is what he did. He came down from heaven to earth in a body and said, hey, I'm God. And he did a bunch of awesome things to prove it. God wants you to be certain. He does. And by God's grace, hopefully we'll develop more certainty as we read through this. So I want you to know God's heart. So first, Luke wants you to be certain. Now I want you to see God's heart in five different ways. Number one, God wants you to be certain that he exists. This is Romans 1, 19 through 20, Psalm 19, 1. I won't read the whole thing, but the idea being from both these texts is that God has created the world in a way to display himself so that your natural instinct as a human being is to believe that there's a God. Now, what gets interesting about this is Romans 1, if you continue through verse 21 and 22, it basically teaches us that everyone knows there is a God. Nobody, at the end of the day, rejects God intellectually, even if they have reasons it's a heart issue. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, that they know he's there, but they suppress the truth. I hate it. I don't want there to be a God that rules over my life. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do. I don't want to be accountable for the things that I have to. I want to live my life my way. And God is there, but I hate that. So I suppress the truth, and now I go come up with lots of reasons why God can't exist. So we see that God has made the universe, Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. You say, why does God not write it in the sky? Well, he did. He did write it in the sky. The stars and the clouds and the way the universe works is literally singing his praises every day. So God wants you to be certain that he exists. 
He created a world that only makes sense if there's a designer behind it. God has not left this unclear. God wants you to be certain that he exists. Number two, God wants you to be certain that he has spoken. God wants you to be certain not just that he exists, but that he has spoken. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. I love this in Joshua 23. Uh, it says, not one word has failed of all the good things the Lord has promised you. So what I want to do real quick, all right? Now this is more, I just want to help you and give you three reasons why you can trust the Bible. Okay? Now there's a hundred more. I'm going to give you three because I'm trying to keep this fast. Three reasons why you can trust the Bible, why you can be certain God has spoken. Now, for the, some of you, it might just be a helpful, you know, I already believe that, great. For some of you, I hope you really listen to say, the Bible's where we learn about Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So we believe that the only way to get to heaven is to trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And whether that's true relies a lot on whether you can trust the Bible at all. So I want you to believe in Jesus, and I want you to know that you can trust the truth of where we're getting it from. And for some of you, I just want to firm up your faith. So three quick reasons. Once again, you could do times and times of sessions on this. The first reason, as I already said, is eyewitness accounts. You can write these down, Luke, 1 John. 1 Corinthians 15 says there were at least 500 witnesses to the resurrection. Now remember, when people are writing these books, the people they are saying were witnesses are a lot. For the most part, at least, and could easily say, no, that's not true. And nobody verifies that. Everyone verifies. So we have tons of eyewitness accounts. The Bible is full of eyewitness accounts that we would take as legit credibility in our world now to assess whether someone should spend life in prison. So now I say, okay, we can take eyewitness accounts to assess whether Jesus died and rose again. We have more than 500. If something happened in this room and all, however many hundred are here, came together and said, yes, that happened. Would anybody in the court of law say, no, it didn't? If literally every single one of us Said, yeah, he walked up and just punched Nate in the face. Aggravated assault. Sam was just tired of using the video. He's tired of Nate's ugly face. He's tired of looking at it. He just punched him in the face. And everybody would be like, yeah, that happened. And somebody would be like, nah, I just don't think so. No, of course not. And now you have 500 people saying, yes, Jesus has died and risen again. So we have eyewitness accounts. The second thing. Uh, is we have 23,000, at least, archaeological digs that confirm the facts of the Bible, such as places, dates, and names. So, this is a fun fact. It has literally never happened that someone dug something up that contradicted a historical fact in the Bible. Never. Isn't that crazy? I think of all the history the Bible talks about. Peoples, places, kings, names, times, boom, 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 boom. Nobody, no, not nobody, has ever dug something up that says, this says this in the Bible, and this is clearly this, and that's not true. This never happened. Every single archaeological dig ever confirms any historical fact we see in the Bible. So that's number two. The third one is that the Bible is an accurate historical record and is verified by both itself and external sources. So how I like to explain this point is that the Bible is the most historically verifiable and reliable document ever. The most historically verifiable, meaning... You have enough evidence on one side to say whether it cooperates or not. There's enough information to test. It's the most historically verifiable, reliable document. I'm going to give you a couple examples. You should write these numbers down. By the way, I got all this information in seminary. I don't remember which book I read out of or whatever, but it's on a PowerPoint by Google Docs. So I should probably reference somebody here. This is not Nature's information. It came from my smart seminary professor, which probably came from a book there. Okay, so... 
Anyways, copyright or whatever, I'm not claiming it's mine, all right, before the Lord, okay. So, uh, the first thing is there's over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. If you include the Old Testament, there's 24,000 manuscripts. The oldest of these dates back to the early 2nd century, which is within 5 to 100 years of the final writing. Now, you may say that means nothing to me, and I understand that. What I want to show you real quick is to compare how many historical documents we take for history and how much information we have to verify their existence and say, if we take these things, like I'm going to show you Julius Caesar's life, to be true based off this much evidence, then, in comparison, we should think more true this thing with all this evidence. Okay, that's what we're doing. We're just we're just making a big stack here and little bitty stacks over here. Okay, so let me give you a few of them. Homer's Iliad. Who read that in high school? All right, man, the system's really really shutting us down. Okay, Homer's Iliad. No poets in the room. Written about 1190 BC. There's only 643 copies or IE manuscripts. So we literally teach that in schools as something somebody wrote down, and we have 643 pieces of evidence to say that it's true. Now, in the Bible, we have 6,000 just for the New Testament. Okay, the second one, Julius Caesar. How many of you believe Julius Caesar really existed? Oh, come on. What are you guys doing? You're all supposed to raise your hands, all right? None of y'all been sitting here thinking, man, I just really doubt whether he existed. No. You're in, like, high school class, like, no, he, no, no, no way. Okay, Julius Caesar. We got the Gallic Wars, which teaches everything about Julius Caesar's life. It was written around 58, 50 B.C., which is really close uh, to Jesus. Only 10 copies of it exist. And get this, the earliest of which was copied down a thousand years after the first one was written. So the, the copies we have of the Bible are literally within 50 to 100 years of when they wrote it down themselves. The guys in the Bible, we believe Julius Caesar did everything that he did. Instead of 6,000, we have 10 pieces of evidence. And those pieces of evidence are based off of a document that was a thousand years late. And we say, yeah, sure, I'll take it. I just want you to see, like, God has made himself clear. He wants you to be certain. He has not only given you faith, but he's given you evidence. Okay, this is important. The next one, Socrates, 470 to 399. I like this one. We don't have any manuscripts of Socrates, none. We have nothing he wrote down, nothing, literally nothing. And we have quotes from Socrates that if you Googled, you'd find them. Quotes from someone that wrote nothing down that we have. The only way we know about Socrates is through Plato. And from Plato, we have seven copies. So we base all of Plato and Socrates' phrases that we love to quote off seven copies that we can hold in our hands in existence. 6,000 is just a little bit more than seven, I think. I don't know. 6,000 more than seven? Okay. I just love this stuff. I hope This is maybe like a seminary class right now, but I hope it helps you, okay? I, this is just great. I hate it when people are like, oh, you can't trust the Bible. Let me show you. Okay. Uh, the writings of Aristotle, only 10. The earliest one is 1,400 years after the original. 1,400. That doesn't make sense. Because it's Beowulf. Who read Beowulf? Man. Okay. That's not even okay. Just, people aren't into literature anymore, right? Is that on Twitter? Is Beowulf on Twitter? I don't, I don't think so. Okay. No, no point. Is Beowulf on Instagram? No. No Beowulf on Instagram. Okay. Beowulf. Only one copy. One written around the 8th century, and the only manuscript we have was damaged by fire. You can't even read half of it. And we, it's in a school did. It's like, yeah, we should teach this. And that's the amount, if that was true about the Bible, people would be kicking it around like, y'all a bunch of jokes, you know? A bunch of fairy tales. No. Okay, 
that's, that's my fun is over with that. I'll give you one more thing. If somebody comes up to you and says, there's so many contradictions in the Bible, I don't know. First of all, if you're ready, say, show me one. Because they can't. They won't. Now, some smart people will show you some that look like contradictions. But most people just say it and they have no idea what they're talking about. So it's my favorite thing to say. Show me one. And they're like, you know, well, yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. It's there. I'm like, okay. You show me one, we'll talk about it. But I would say, they'll only say that if you're ready to answer the ones that are there that look like contradictions. Okay? Then they might. Some smart person will show you one. Like, okay. All right. So you say, oh, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. Well, this is one of my favorite facts. 99% of the supposed errors you find in the Bible are simple things like somebody writing Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. So you just got these Pharisee people writing stuff down. They're copying manuscripts, and it's dark, and they got candles, you know, and they got these whatever the little feather things they use, and they're, they're reading the papyrus, you know, and they're like falling asleep, just doing this, you know, can you imagine? Can you imagine copying this all day in a dimly lit room? You'd be like, uh, Leviticus chapter 9, but, you know, it'd be so confusing. That's what they were doing, and sometimes, God forbid, they wrote down Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. Man, that just wrecks my faith. I'll tell you what, I really wish they had not have done that. So literally, 99% of the supposed errors in the Bible are simple miswritings like that. And even the other 1%, which can be debatable, no matter the outcome of the argument, have no bearing on any significant theological position. They, they're irrelevant theologically. They don't matter. If you came out one way or the other way, it wouldn't change whether Jesus is the God, whether any of these things are true. So you take all the errors, supposed errors, 99% are just scribal changes. The other 1% don't matter. Wouldn't change anything the Bible says about theology or things that are reported. So don't let somebody tell you there's a lot of contradictions or errors in the Bible. Okay. Lesson over. Was that helpful? Yeah. Right. Did you write it down? Yeah. Okay. If you email me, I'll send you my PowerPoint. I will. I will. It's all there. There's more, too. Okay, I just had to pick something. I'm already out of time. I should end the sermon right now. So, all right. Number three, God wants you to be certain that he has come. Jesus, as we know, has fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Bible. God wants you to be certain that he has come. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. God said, I sent Jesus, and now he died and rose again. And may all y'all know for certain that this is the Messiah. God wants you to know he has come. Number four, God wants you to be certain about salvation. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, say it with me, know that you have eternal life. I'm writing these things to you so that you may hope that you have eternal life. I'm writing these things to you so that you may have a good bet that you have eternal life. I'm writing these things to you so that you have a great guess that you may have eternal life. No. God doesn't want anybody in here wondering whether they have eternal life. I'm writing these things to you so that you may believe in the Son of God, Jesus, so that you can know that you have eternal life. And some of you, that's your step today, is to believe in Jesus so that you can know for certain that you have eternal life with him. Number five, God wants you to be certain about his character. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God wants you to be certain about his character. God is not a God of confusion. His nature is not to confuse, but to bring peace. God wants you to be certain about who he is. God does not want you to be confused about him. He does not. You may feel confused. You may feel confused about your life situation. 
And I'm not saying God wants you to be certain about you should take this job or that job or wear this clothes or that jacket or put these or date that person. I don't know. Just do whatever. Just don't sin while you're doing it, okay? Just pick one of the things, right? But what we see here is God wants you to be certain about the things that matter about the message of Jesus. Now, God's not a God of confusion, but peace. Now, I want to clarify something real quick. I think this will be helpful to you. Mystery is not the same thing as confusion. So when I'm getting uncertainty, I'm not saying you walk out of here. You're like, man, I know everything about God now. That would make you God at that point, okay? So that would never happen, all right? Even in heaven, we're learning more and more and more. Heaven's just an unfolding of who God is forever, and it's awesome. So we'll never know everything. But mystery is not the same thing as confusion. And sometimes we take mystery as confusion, and then we call God life. But God has left mystery, but it doesn't mean he has left you confused. Let me give you an example. You don't have to know everything to be certain about something. You do not have to know everything to be certain about something. Now, here's an example. At least it's true in my life. I hope it's been true in your life if you've decided to marry somebody. When you decide to marry somebody, do you have an email with a Word document in it with everything that person has ever said, done, or felt? And you can analyze the Word document and know exactly who they are, everything about them, and you make a decision on whether they're worth marrying. No, of course you don't do that. You don't have to know everything to be certain about something. What do you do? You meet them. You get to know them, hopefully long enough. <laughs> long enough. You're married forever. It's a long time, okay? So you get to know them, and you make a decision based off the information that you have. And I know sometimes marriage, obviously, a lot of marriages don't work out. I'm not saying this is like a complete guarantee or whatever, but this is how we think. You can make a informed decision based off some information. You don't need all the information to commit to someone forever. You just need some of it. You need enough to know. So the same thing works with God is I don't have to know everything to know something, to be certain about who he is and what he has done. I don't have to know exactly how he works all these things out all the time. That's for God. But I do need to know that God is not a God of confusion. I do need to know that God turns everything that's meant for evil for my good. That's Genesis 50, 20. That's pulled right out of the Bible. It's not something some Christian made up to feel good about life. This is what we're saying. God is a clear God, and you don't have to know everything to be certain about something. And so there's room for mystery while maintaining certainty. You can have mystery and certainty together. This is what the world wants to try to pull apart for you to say, if there's mystery, you can't have certainty. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. You have enough to know. So, certain mystery is not the same thing as confusion. You don't have to know everything about to be certain about something. Okay, the last thing, the greatest place of certainty is in the character of Jesus. So, this is important. We can trust the Bible. We can trust Luke. We know God's heart. But at the end of the day, the greatest place for certainty isn't in the facts that you can line up, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and say it with me, forever. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The greatest place for certainty is in the character of Jesus. So the goal of reading through Luke and the goal of teaching through Luke is to help all of us encounter Jesus. So something you need to write down, certainty grows with connection. Certainty grows with connection. If you grow and pursue connection with God, you will grow in your certainty of God. The reason so many of you are doubting and struggling is not because you don't have enough information. It's because you haven't invested in the relationship. You know the facts. You believe what's true. 
but you're still waffling and you live uncertain without confidence in God simply because you haven't related to him. Certainty grows with connection. The more my wife proves to be faithful and loving and true, the more I spend time with her and she proves to be everything that she has said that she is, the more I trust her and the more my relationship with her grows more certain. In the same way it is with God, the more I connect with him, pursue him, spend time with him, love him, Get with him, my certainty will grow. And so many of us, once again, have relied on pastors and teachers, people to give you information about God, facts, somebody like this to line up the truth. And what's really going to give you certainty in life, not just certainty about this, but certainty every day. Certainty to follow Jesus. Certainty to be sure about who God is. He's for you and not against you. Certainty to give you hope in the midst of really tough times. The kind of certainty in God's goodness that allows you to sing hallelujah in the storm. The kind of certainty that you need, not just to trust God for one moment, but to live this life every day. The kind of certainty that you need to really be faithful with Jesus will only come through connection with him. That's the only place you're going to get it. I'm telling you, it's the only place. Because I can give you all these facts and information. You can write it down and say, yeah, 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 that's true. And I hope that helps you. It definitely helps me. I love this stuff. It helps me. But at the end of the day, the reason I trust God is not because I have this information, but it's because I've met him. It's because he's always been faithful. He's never let me down. Even in tough situations when things didn't work out, when your wife miscarries or something falls apart, and you're just like, what is God doing? You trust him because he's proved good in the relationship. It's my relationship that gives me certainty. It gives me faith. It gives me confidence. And what I want for all of us is to take this or your Bible or whatever and begin to foster your connections so that you can grow in your certainty. Because the more confidence you have in who God is, the more risk you're willing to take to glorify his name. If you want to be a church, I'm telling you, that makes a real difference. That's going to require all of us entering into awkward conversations a lot. It's going to require a lot of us to give up time we'd rather spend doing something it's going to require a lot of us to make decisions based not off how we feel or the things we prefer, but based off what we believe to be true. And if we're not certain, we won't make a difference. If we're not certain, we won't try. If we're not certain, we'll do it halfway. But with certainty comes impact. So the more certain we can be, the more you grow in your relationship with Jesus, the more certain you are that if my coworkers don't hear the gospel, they will go to hell apart from Jesus forever. I don't want that to happen. That changes the way I view going to work. If we say, man, I can either sleep in on this Saturday or I can go to this thing and we're trying to minister the gospel of word and deed to serve people. If I'm certain that this is the only thing that really matters in life, I'm going to make a different decision. And so now when we say, oh, Lord, we want to be a people who make a difference in this community, who don't just gather where your services are a launching pad, not a landing place. If these things are true, it's going to take a group of people that are confident in who God is, that believe it to the very core of their existence, and that not only have heard the truth, but have met the Lord and are fostering that relationship with him every day. If we do that, church, if we're certain in who God is based off what he has told us and who he is, then we're going to be a church that makes a real difference in the world. All right, so good news. The first good news is that you can be certain. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we have your word. Lord, what a privilege. People all over the world don't even have a Bible. They don't have access to your truth, Lord. We don't want to take that for granted. We thank you. Because you know our, our struggles are so real and our, our human flesh is so weak and it's so difficult for us to believe sometimes. You've given us all this evidence. 
You've given us all this information, God, to help us. We thank you for that. But at the end of the day, you've given us yourself. And Lord, I just pray that we would be a group of people who encounter Jesus, who connect with you and grow with you. Would you give us certainty based off our relationship with you? Lord, create that group of people that walk into the world confidently because we have certainty. Lord, would you do that here with us? We thank you for who you are. We believe you. We thank you that you never change. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.